You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. My name is Joel Achenbach. I'm a science reporter here at the Washington Post, and I am really excited about today because we are going to be talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, which made an amazing splash last week with the release of the first set of images taken by the telescope, which is out there about a roughly a million miles from Earth, looking at the cosmos at multiple layers, including pretty much all the way back to near the beginning of time itself. So we have as our guest today, I'm delighted to say, Dr. Thomas Zerbuchen, uh, who is the head of science at NASA and in charge not only of the web and, and that program, but of many other programs that, to come. And we're going to discuss, I think, mostly the web today, uh, Dr. Zerbukin, but also feel free to tell us what else NASA has coming along. So welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you so much. So um, it's okay if I call you Dr. Z. I know people call you Dr. Z. You can call me Mr. A. You know, we'll go from go to A to Z. Um, I hope yeah, that's, that's absolutely A. great. Absolutely calls me that. Yeah, absolutely. Either that or Thomas. Either way, it's just fine. Okay. Um, well, uh, I'm going to start with not not even a question, but really just a, an exclamation, which is which is wow. Um, I mean, you know, as a science reporter, this was a really exciting story and I think for everyone across the planet to see those images. When you and I talked last fall, you were very open about that you were nervous because there were so many things that could go wrong with the mission and it was just, you know, natural to be nervous. How are you feeling now? Oh, I'm so relieved and of course, uh, you know, enormously proud of the team that got us there. Uh, I was rightly nervous. You know, it's not the case that I was like, I'm a very nervous person, generally speaking. You know, I do uh, many things kind of that are challenging. And, and that's kind of my job, uh, both here at NASA, but I've always been that way. But this is the most complex mission we've ever done. There's a thousand ways or more that this could go badly. And one way it can go well. And that's the way this team chartered, right? And so for me, it's just very excited for, for them, proud of them. But you know, curious about what we're going to find now. Just for a second, can you summarize why there were so many things that could go wrong? You know, obviously it's the biggest, most complex space telescope. But without going through all 344 single point failures, just just tell the audience, you know, why this is so difficult. So Joel, first of all, uh, let's just look at the size of the team. Uh, it was interesting. I was in uh, uh, this week. I was in uh, Athens. And I went and had a tour of the Acropolis and they, were, they basically talked about the size of the team that built that historic monument. The answer was 20,000 people. That's the number of people that built uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. So it's a really historically big team. When you have a team like that, it's really, really hard to do. So that's the first thing you need to recognize, especially because of the fact that these has three space agencies, you know, in many different countries, uh, many states in the U.S. and so forth. In addition to that, it's a very complex, uh, you know, frankly, mechanical system. So it needs to run really, really cold, and it needs to be very, very big. Those two things together, uh, having to launch, of course, uh, in a rocket, it has to fit in at the top of a rocket, makes it enormously hard. It's almost like a transformer of a spacecraft in which 
you launch something that is shaped one way and you saw it in the, the little movie up front, kind of like a little package, and then it folds up into something at the bottom that is the size of a, a tennis court, right? That sunshield that keeps the telescope cold. The telescope, of course, being 21 feet across, which is much, much bigger than any other telescope we've ever done. Uh, the, the Hubble was only 2.4 a meter or kind of a third or so of of of, uh, of what, what web is well and also it's it it has to operate out at l2 which is roughly a million miles from earth and you can't send astronauts out there to give it a kick if that sun shield doesn't open up so um but so tell what did you think when you realized that it worked and when did you realize this thing really does work and what did you think when you saw those first amazing images what was your reaction so the first key milestone where I'm, you know, I, of course, by the way, I always hoped and believed it would work, right? I mean, you, I mean, you, the most important thing we have in our work, besides building the best team we can equip to really do this work, is the hope for success. We always bet on success. I mean, I never bet on failure. I had no contingency plan, right? It's, it's like we had, this has to work. Same is true, by the way, when we landed on Mars. Uh, the, you know, the, you know, the February last year, you know, like it has to work. And, and frankly, we built the, the follow-up mission assuming that it will work. We had no other contingency plan. And so, so we're always going to do that. So when I, when I uh, you know, first time I really felt enormously relieved. It's kind of something like, you know, seven, eight days after when the whole sun shield was deployed. Uh, for me, if you just look at it in terms of complexity, the pulley system, that kind of tennis uh, court, sized, uh, you know, five layer sun shield. Once it was deployed, I'm like, wow, this has, you know, we're a, a long way there. And I was there for the last deployment of the side, one of the three, uh, you know, mirror sides of, uh, of the entire mirror that had to be deployed. And then of course, uh, once the first uh, images came out, right? Kind of, there's really two things. Yeah, Dr. Z, that, tell that us I, about the images. Tell us about the images, Dr. Z, if you can. What'd you, what did you think? Yeah, I saw the images coming out and it took my breath away, frankly, initially, because it's incredibly beautiful. And so it's both the amazement of the images, uh, you know, looking at them, but then their beauty of the, you know, the universe, how beautiful it is, how complex it is, but also the pride of the team that got us there. Right. So let's, we, the, the engineering that went into this mission, uh, it, it, we've just discussed it. It, it. it was amazing, a tremendous feat for NASA and, and its partners um, in Europe and Canada and, and all the, the contractors. But talk about the science. What is this telescope going to do? What are we going to see out there? And it really just des describe what's coming up uh, in the next, hopefully, many years of observing the universe. So first of all, uh, the telescope was built to really look at the universe in its very coldest light, the infrared light. So it's kind of, if you said, you know, if you have IR, uh, you know, on Earth, how would that feel? Well, it's more like a sensation on your skin, right? So the eye doesn't actually see it. So it's very, uh, it, it's a kind of a signal of heat, so to say, that's coming. Now you say, why, why does that matter? Well, there's at least three reasons you want to see that. First of all, the old universe, because of the expansion of the universe and kind of the, the kind of moving uh, of, of the farthest reaches of the universe to colder and colder light for that reason, uh, we want to look back in time. So that's the number one uh, reason we wanted to do that. That was uh, what motivated the scientists even 25 years ago. Uh, the, 
Second reason, of course, is when you look at the universe in that light, uh, you see kind of chemistry, kind of the molecules that we're breathing out, whether it's CO2 or others, you know, they oscillate uh, as uh, and, and emit radiation in that wavelength range. And the third one is that if you look at infrared, and of course the military is using that, we're using that when we search for uh, people, kind of we can see through, for example, the fog, we can see through dust and look what's behind, uh, looking at the heat signatures. And those three reasons make it an enormously powerful tool, never precedented. Describe just for a second what that big mirror uh, gives us in the way of resolution. I mean, obviously, other telescopes have looked at the universe in the infrared, like the Spitzer uh, Space Telescope, and even the Hubble goes a little bit into the infrared, even though it's mostly in the op optical part of the, the spectrum. But what about the design of the telescope that allows you to see things that other telescopes could not ha have seen as well? So if you looked at Hubble and uh, Webb at the same wavelength, right, and basically looked at uh, the resolution it has, kind of the parcel in the sky, it can really resolve kind of with clarity. Uh, basically what happens is Webb is basically largely a third better just based on size, but that would totally understate it because in addition to that, it's cold. So basically what it means is actually that parcel, if you looked at it for one hour on Webb and one hour on, on uh, on Hubble, the web uh, would give you something like 10 times or 20 times, depending on you know the, the, the noise uh, signatures, more clarity. Uh, and so basically it's both, uh, the, uh, and the third piece is uh, you have collection area that is also more, so kind of in, so there's three things that go in the same direction. So higher resolution in angle uh, by a factor of three, but much deep, kind of much more collection area and less noise in the system, which makes it so much more clear. All these things matter and give us a kind of a sensation of probably 10x or so more kind of power in a given picture. Of course, you have, you have to make the scientific and argue about it, but that's the way I would think about it. When I was uh, at NASA last week for the big re release, when you, you were there, one of the engineers said, that the web is performing so well and so far beyond spec uh, that uh, that it should be able to see first light. And I, and I think what he meant by that was not, you know, the microwave background radiation, which is really the, the first light, but, but the first stars and, and galaxies. I've heard other scientists say, you know, maybe not, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's tough out there beyond redshift 11 or whatever it is. Can you explain that to us? How far back in time and deep in space can this telescope potentially go? Yeah, so let's, uh, let's just talk about timescale, kind of the, the beginning of the universe. And of course, uh, John Matter and Reese and others got the Nobel Prize for that is three, you know, 13.8 billion years. That's the beginning of time, kind of the Big Bang. And, and where the galaxies arise, frankly, is a matter of debate, right? So some people say it's 100 million years. Uh, later or 300 million years later. So what we announced uh, last week is that even in the first image, we had uh, light already from 13.1 uh, billion years, which 700 million years after the Big Bang. I, I don't know what you've seen, Joel, but there's in the archive, there's a first result already submitted as a paper, which is 300 million years. So it's already halfway closer uh, to that initial point. So it's kind of, and, and the question really is, frankly, there are two questions like, when is the, when are the first galaxies and stars? You know, is it closer to 100 or 300 
and uh, and will we see? I mean, for me, for me, the first question is is frankly the more relevant one because we seem to be getting so close already. This is a week into it, Joe. We're already uh, kind of having, of course, uh, results that need to be confirmed through peer review that are already telling us regarding as close as many scientists thought the first galaxies are. So I believe we're going to get awfully close, if not really, uh, you know, getting to the first ones. Uh, thank you. We're going to go to a, a question from the audience here. Uh, this is Joanna from uh, Johanna from Pennsylvania, who asks, what is the most ambitious goal of JWST? What is its life expectancy? How often should we be seeing data and images? So I think the most ambitious goals, there's really two. Uh, the first one we just talked about, which is to really image the first galaxies in the universe, which is, uh, you know, kind of the earliest page of our picture book of life, right? Kind of out there after the Big Bang when, you know, big elements that were built out of uh, form in these galaxies. Uh, uh, the other one uh, has to do with really finding uh, planets in our own galaxy that could harbor life. For me, that's an equally ambitious goal and a goal that's a lot more modern in time, because frankly, when Webb was started, that was not a goal uh, that was there. We'll have, um, you, know, uh, you know, the way we talk about the lifetime of uh, Webb, uh, there's kind of two ways to talk about it. The first one is design life. So everything was tested that it surely will work for five years. Uh, but uh, then there's a number of things that need to all work together uh, to basically say how much life we have. And a lot of that we're still figuring out. The fuel lifetime, because of the excellent launch that Ariane's bus gave us, uh, is at uh, 20 years. But there's other lifetimes that matter. You heard about the micrometeorite that hit us, right? Kind of that, that rate also matters, as do other, like the lifetime of the cryocoolers, you know, and subsystems. So I would say between five and 20 years, and if we're lucky, even beyond that. And then how often do we see images? All the time. You should be waiting for almost weekly, bi-weekly, you see new images. Well, you actually just mentioned something. No, I had not checked the archive. I did not realize that someone had posted a paper showing, uh, was it a galaxy 300 million years after the Big Bang? Is that a galaxy? Exactly right. Exactly right. They saw, they found one that asked, uh, the spectral signatures of that kind of galaxy. And again, that needs to be confirmed through peer review. But my point is from the beginning when we announced 3.1 billion, I'm like, this is this is good. We're gonna see this uh, record shattered. This would be the oldest galaxy ever observed by any means. The the one that just posted. The, 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 exactly would, right. Would be, okay, so that's a new record. Uh, so that's amazing. Um, one thing that you're, pointing out that may not uh, be obvious to everyone is that the data are going onto a, a public site, right? So if I'm a graduate student in you know, someplace far away, I, I, I can work with that and potentially uh, uh, publish findings about it. Isn't that true? Exactly right. A significant fraction of the early data we're going to put out right away uh, for two reasons. Uh, for the reasons you said, frankly, we want citizens from around the world to kind of who are interested in science to pick up those data and play with them. I think it's just amazing. We already see charts that people put out because they do so, people who are not astronomers. And then we also want the astronomy community to know what this telescope can do. And we want them to recalibrate their expectations. We want them to be more ambitious. And so for us, uh, that's absolutely critical uh, that, that that is happening. So really take full advantage of this new capability. When you say be more ambitious, are you implying that 
uh, maybe a lot of people didn't think it was going to work. You know, the sun shield wouldn't open up, the mirrors wouldn't open up, and they, they may have calibrated their ambitions according to, to some pessimism that the, the web would be able to produce at the level it's producing. Uh, is that what you're saying? Uh, many of them, of course, thought the telescope would work. That's why they said, I want to use it. But what they had said, for example, for a given you know, exoplanet, I need 10 hours of integration to resolve that exoplanet. What we found in some of our initial data, it only took a third of the time because the telescope is overperforming. So they could do three exoplanets instead of one for that time. You know, so for us, it's really leaning forward into it and use the capability as best as you can. You mentioned a minute ago uh, the micro meteor. Me I can't say it. The micro meteoroid. Yeah, I, I can't spell it, and I can't say it. Um, uh, impact that happened in late May. Can you uh, explain uh, uh, to the audience, you know, what exactly that meant? I understand it, it did some damage that cannot be entirely fixed, but did not throw the telescope so far out of whack that it that it made a, a, a huge difference. But the concern, as I understand it, is that the model for the amount of dust that's out there at L2, um, you know, may have been imprecise, and because you were expecting this kind of thing to happen maybe once every five years, and in the first five months, you get you get hit pretty hard. So was the model wrong? Yeah, exactly right. So kind of one of the things we're always reminded by is that space is not empty. So it's full of these plasmas, the gases from the sun. And uh, of course, the telescope is designed to handle that, but it also has dust in it. You know, part of it are these little grains, the tiny little dust grains. And we've been hit six times already. Uh, we expected to be hit uh, every month or so with one of them, but a really tiny one. And there was this bigger one that came, and you just mentioned it, that came too early. And it makes us nervous, right? And so kind of think of it like, you know, if I was into cars and I bought this amazing new car and it's shiny, it came from the dealership and, you know, somebody smacked the door into my side. So there's a dent in my car. Well, it's still a car, but there's a dent in it. So the way I think about it is that uh, we need to understand what, uh, you know, how abundant these uh, part, you know, these kind of heavier uh, hits are going to be, or even heavier than the one that, that hit us and kind of just say, hey, can we do something to protect the telescope more than we, uh, than we are right now? For example, by, you know, if you want flying back first into the dust streams uh, where we know that most of the dust is coming from. So that's what the team is working on right now. Uh, let me ask you about the name of the telescope. Obviously, there's been controversy about the name the, in, in, uh, uh, being named after James Webb, the former NASA administrator during the heyday of the Apollo era, uh, that there has been concern that he was complicit in the repression of uh, the rights of, of gay and lesbian federal workers back in the 1950s and 1960s. And we heard last week that NASA is still looking at that and is planning to issue some kind of additional uh, report on it. Can you discuss that? When will we see this report? Will it be renamed? And how do you feel about that? Well, so first of all, uh, the most important thing I feel about is that uh, gay and lesbian scientists are welcome to work with uh, Webb and our data and our teams, uh, as are everybody else. That's the standard that I want to set both as a leader at NASA. But And by the way, that's not just for that uh, group. It's also for our colleagues who are uh, uh, might be immigrants, people who are, you know, communities that are not generally have been part of our community. It's absolutely important for us that they're there. 
Uh, it is true that, uh, that uh, you know, NASA is still working as the archives have opened and have basically looked at this and uh, has been working at, uh, uh, you know, really seeing where there's something there. This is handled at the administrator's office and we'll, we'll see what, what's coming out of there uh, as we go forward uh, personally. Uh, that what I'm focusing on much more than anything else is what I started with here is we want to build an environment in NASA, all NASA science programs, not just this one, uh, where everybody's very much welcomed and uh, basically feels that they are, uh, you know, uh, kind of at home and, and kind of can contribute to these amazing missions that we have. So will you contribute to that decision uh, it, one way or the other? Will you um, lend your voice to it? Uh, I've been in, engaged in a number of discussions. At the end, uh, the discussion, the decision is not handled by me. Gotcha. Um, the um, I want to go to another question from the audience. Uh, this is from Mary Ann uh, from Pennsylvania, who asks, uh, "How will all the money spent on space exploration help our planet?" And this is a question we that I think a lot of people ask, which is, you know, we not only with things like the web uh, or you know, the, the the Perseverance rover that landed on Mars and other space science things, but also questions about human exploration and going back to the moon, you know, but but talk about the, the astronomy. Why is this important to people on our planet? Look, it's important for two reasons. Uh, that the first one is the technologies that we're developing here. And so often uh, many of these technologies have imminent applications both here on Earth or in space to look at Earth. Uh, this morning, as we woke up, we looked at weather forecasts that benefit from technologies that were developed for previous telescopes that uh, are looking at the Earth, imaging it uh, with different wave bands, including uh, red wave bands. And uh, the technologies that we're developing surely is advancing that uh, kind of ability and giving us more data. Uh, technologies also have very unexpected uh, benefits sometimes, uh, you know, uh, in our own phones that we're carrying around this technology that initially was designed elsewhere. Uh, so that's really, that kind of application space really, really matters. And especially as it uh, focuses on our planet matters in an existential fashion. It's also true though, that I believe that uh, uh, countries like the United States, uh, you know, have benefited from doing both, kind of dealing with the uh, issues of today, but also looking at inspiration of tomorrow and kind of pushing the boundaries. Uh, pushing the boundaries has served as well because problems that we don't yet have today, we're finding solutions to by doing research uh, today into the tomorrow. So, so for me, for me, that kind of aspirational and inspirational part has always been part of the United States. And uh, I surely believe and hope it will be in the future. Let's talk about um, money at the level that you have to deal with uh, figuring, figuring out which missions are going to get how many dollars, because there's a lot of uh, proposals out there and, and uh, big dreams for new telescopes and telescopes that can directly see planets in a way that though even the web can't. Uh, the web got labeled as the telescope that ate astronomy. Uh, I, I forget if, what journal said that, but it, it, it did cost a lot of money. And I know that there are people who would say, hey, it's worth it. it, it it's spectacular. But do, are you concerned at all about how much web cost? And I guess from a practical standpoint, how can you make sure that you don't have a mission that gobbles up all the money that could go to other missions? So I'm deeply concerned. Uh, first of all, I'm a taxpayer. 
I want the money that I'm giving the government to be spent in a responsible fashion. I want performance of the money that's coming from me, whether I'm in charge of the science program or somebody else's, to be done with the same kind of attention that I expect when I spend money on somebody else, you know, whether it's the car dealer or somebody else. I expect the performance. And, and frankly, that's what the job is of our team here is to, to do the best job possible in building that. Now, it's a lot easier uh, to build, you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, 100,000th car after you did the others than a first of a kind. And so kind of what we're doing when we're pushing the envelope, it's, it's just harder. And, uh, but, you know, everybody says, well, it's worth it and people will forget about this. I told my entire team, we will not forget the lessons that we learned and, and some of the challenging chapters of this telescope, we will use for every mission that we're doing from now on going forward. That's our job. Do you think the telescope will help us understand life beyond Earth? I'm, you know, obviously it's, it can take uh, the spectra of, of exoplanets, uh, but it wasn't designed for that mission, as I understand it. Um, in fact, it was sort of designed before we had really discovered thousands of exoplanets around distant stars. So, uh, but the, you know, the whole issue of life beyond Earth is important to people. They think about it all the time. How will the web help us understand that? So I, life beyond Earth is one of the top topics in all of the NASA science program. We have many different missions and we're spending billions of dollars on that because it's such an important question and so, so much of interest to our citizens uh, in the United States and beyond. Uh, what Webb will do, of course, it will measure you know, atmospheric signatures of, uh, of these planets in our own galaxy. And of course, uh, you say, well, does that matter? Well, look at the Earth, when life was arising on, on the Earth, kind of single cell organisms, the entire atmosphere changed. And what we're really excited about is looking at atmospheres and looking at signatures that we believe has to do with habitable planets, kind of signatures of uh, even you know, places where uh, life could arise that shift uh, the atmosphere into things that have more CO2, for example, things that are coming out of our mouth that is, you know, our product of life or, or N2, nitrogen uh, and so forth, which we also believe has a lot to do with life uh, by many theories. So, so yes, we seek to learn, kind of searching for life elsewhere is not a yes, no question. It's a whole set of investigations that together help us to understand the, how scarce life really is in the universe and how it evolves uh, from kind of a uh, chemical type of environment of uh, stars and stellar regions uh, and planets uh, to something that is truly alive. So, so we have time for, I think, one more question. This is one that uh, is from our audience. It's from William uh, from California. He says, do you personally believe that humanity will figure out the physics of how to travel across interstellar space? So warp drive, et cetera. Um, is that something that uh, we will figure out one of these days? Uh, I sure hope so, because, I mean, for me, you know, if you ask me what's the mission you would really like to do you're not working on right now, it's making progress towards travel to the next star. I mean, for me, you know, Voyager is out there a couple hundred, uh, you know, nearly a couple hundred uh, times the Earth's sun distance, and yeah, I'd like to go to a thousand uh, or a ten, you know, kind of 10x more. Uh, at the same, at you know, at the same time, or, or so, to kind of to learn how to do that, and and there will be progress that come from propulsion and other technologies, including perhaps the geometry itself of space itself, which we don't know yet 
And I sure hope we're going to do that. For me, when I hear big questions like that, the answer is never no. It's just uh, I don't know when. Dr. Z, this has been really enjoyable. We're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, Joel. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.